if she were to win, it would be the most liberal president we have had in a long, long time. It's the 1980s. A woman from Oklahoma, a lawyer, a mother of two, and a Republican, is traveling across the country with a photocopier. Because it's the 80s and photocopiers were scarce, so she brought her own. She was working on a big study examining bankruptcy. Who files for it and how it happens and why? This was right after a law passed that made it way easier to file for bankruptcy. She, an economic conservative, had set out to prove one thing. Here's what that woman from Oklahoma said in an interview at UC Berkeley. I set out to prove they were all a bunch of cheaters. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my take on this, my, mm-hmm. my thrust, what I was going to do is I was going to expose these people who were taking advantage of the rest of us by hauling off to bankruptcy and discharging debts that they really could repay or who'd been irresponsible in running up debts. I'm Sean Morrow. Welcome to Who Is from Now This, a podcast where we explore the past and present of the most powerful people in Washington and beyond, the people molding our world and determining our destinies through interviews with folks who've known or have followed them for years. This week, we're looking at Massachusetts Senator and 2020 presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, in some sense, is the embodiment of the American dream. She is, as other people who are Republicans and conservatives as well, but she's a person who did not come from much, a very humble background in Oklahoma, her three brothers all joined the military. Her life mission, as she tells it, was to be a public school teacher. That's James Pindle, longtime political reporter for the Boston Globe, the biggest newspaper in Massachusetts, which Warren now represents in the Senate. Elizabeth Warren was born in a middle working class family in Norman, Oklahoma. She eventually got a debate scholarship uh, because she was a championship debater in high school. She got a debate scholarship to George Washington University. Her parents can afford college, so the scholarship was necessary. And she also came from a family that didn't put a premium on women going to college. So she goes to college, but then um, her high school boyfriend comes back and asks her to marry him. And to an extent that she she now regrets her decision and, and sort of makes fun of herself on the trail, she drops out of college and marries him eventually moves back to Houston, where she starts attending university on the side for $50 a semester, you know, is having a young family at a very young age. I think she's 22 when she has her first child. That's Alex Thompson, Politico's correspondent following Senator Warren during the 2020 Democratic primaries. He's describing how Warren dropped out of college to take care of her daughter. It's a really important moment in her life. She met a guy, dropped out of college and began to uh, raise a family and followed him around. It was in Houston where it was sort of a pivotal moment in her life took her. Uh, her husband was taking a job. She got divorced. She's now a single parent. She starts waitressing, a story that a lot of Americans, I think, can relate to. Relatability is an important aspect of American politics. And Elizabeth Warren is very aware of that. There's a story that Warren likes to tell on the campaign trail. Here's Sheila Kohatkar, a staff writer at The New Yorker, who wrote a definitive profile on Warren in June of 2019 and has covered her for years. 
her mom was a stay-at-home mom, and her dad was working at some kind of low-level manufacturing job. And at one point, he was struck by a sudden heart attack, and it was very scary. And when she tells this story on the campaign trail, she gets sort of choked up, and it's very emotional. I mean, people really respond to this. Her dad was out of work for a long time, and suddenly the family was at risk of losing their home. Uh, She went into her mother's bedroom, and her mother was there getting dressed into her special occasion dress, you know, and she kind of says, when she's telling the story on the stump, she says, everyone has a dress like this in their closet. It's the dress you pull out when there's a funeral or some special event. So her mother was trying to squeeze her middle-aged body into this dress, and she was saying, we're not going to lose the house. We're not going to lose the house. And it's a very sort of cinematic image. And then she marched off and got a minimum wage job at Sears. So right now we have Warren coming from this lower middle class Oklahoma upbringing. She has a daughter and a degree from a public university. She's still a registered Republican. She's moving around the country, following her husband's career, and so far sacrificing her education and her career to raise a family. But after graduating from University of Houston, she manages to get accepted and enroll at Rutgers Law, a public university in New Jersey. Here she is reflecting on that time in a 2007 interview. I never met a lawyer. I mean, Mm. I never, Mm. I didn't travel in those circles. And I took the law school like a pig takes Mm. to mud. Mm -hmm. I mean, this Mm -hmm. was fabulous. Mm -hmm. I loved Mm -hmm. law school. And then my third year, final year in law school, I got pregnant again, and I didn't take a job. Mm -hmm. Alex was born um, about three weeks after I graduated, and it was the hardest moment in my life Mm -hmm. because I thought this world that had opened up to me, this Mm -hmm. world of ideas and Law was a tool. You could make things happen Mm -hmm. with it. I thought, because I didn't take a job right out of law school, it was all over. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just kissed it all goodbye. I'd stepped off the train Mm -hmm. and would never have a chance to get back on it. Mm -hmm. So I uh, took the bar, hung out a shingle in northern New Jersey, did uh, real estate closings and and little incorporations and lawsuits, all on the civil side. Mm -hmm. And raised my two babies, and then Rutgers called and said, somebody didn't show up to teach a class. Mm. Would you like to come and teach it and start Thursday? Being a teacher and professor is super important to Warren's narrative. And as a professor, she had the opportunity to do some really interesting research. Which brings us back to her flying around the country carrying a photocopier around. Again, she was researching how bankruptcy works. One of her research colleagues told me that she was a pay-your-debts kind of person. And I don't think she had been particularly political when she went into this big academic study. I mean, she said, oh, I think I was registered Republican at some point, but I was never really very political. And even when she was pursuing this research, she says that it was not politically driven. She was just curious and had a scholarly interest in making a name for herself with some interesting research. The theory was that people were gaming the bankruptcy system because of how it was written, and that that was why the number of bankruptcy filings were increasing. But she and two academic associates decided to, instead of going through the theory, their signature sort of approach was 
going to bankruptcy courts across the country, one by one by one, and going through bankruptcy filings and interviewing, at times interviewing people who were actually going to the bankruptcy courts. And this moment is a pretty big revelation for Warren, who at the time had, she even by her own admission, sort of went into the research expecting that she was going to find a bunch of deadbeats. The people that, in her own mind, she feels that her own family didn't go bankrupt, even when they were at a point of crisis and um, financially in their lives, when her father had a heart attack and couldn't work and, you know, eventually went back and was doing sort of a menial labor and menial jobs. So she feels, hey, my family didn't go bankrupt like these people are. So she expects to sort of feel that these people are just not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. But what she concludes after seeing all these bankruptcy filings and going through all the research is that these people are her family. That shift in perspective is hugely important to shaping the progressive that Elizabeth Warren would one day become. Here's Sheila Kohatkar with more. She's a senator. She's an academic. She's a student of debt. And I think that's almost the most interesting thing about her. She sees the economy. She sees people through the lens of their indebtedness and Debt like as policy, partially. Partly, yes, because she, I mean, the thing that really put her on the map academically was the seminal research she did on personal bankruptcies. And she was one of the first people to introduce this idea that, you know, that bankruptcy was being used by middle class families to address almost systemic problems that they were facing in the economy. Wages were not going up. Right. Housing costs were increasing dramatically. Healthcare costs were increasing dramatically. She showed through just rigorous analysis of data that, in fact, many of those people were hardworking middle-class people who had been struggling, and many of them had been borrowing, borrowing, borrowing to try and catch up, and eventually were just drowned. So that was really important because it was the first time, you know, there was a body of data to kind of counteract this prevailing view that people who were accepting government help were lazy and not contributing to societies. Warren, as an academic, did something that very few politicians seem able to do. She looked at all the available evidence, got a greater understanding of the issue, and changed her mind. At least that's what she tells people. At this point, she's still registered as a Republican. She says that politics itself was never really a big thing in her life. She was from Oklahoma. She lived in Texas. She lived in a number of areas where she just was a cultural Republican, but never really hardcore about it. And she even said she voted for Bob Dole for president over Bill Clinton in 1996. 1996. That's pretty recent. How did Warren go from voting Republican 25 years ago to being one of the most progressive people in the Senate and on the 2020 debate stage? Again, it all has to do with education. If you ever go to Harvard Law School or Yale Law School, most of the professors also went to an Ivy League law school. There are very few state law school graduates at being professors there. So she went from Rutgers Law School, ascended all the way to Harvard Law School because just by like hard work and just a really prodigious academic scholarship output. She is that person, but she is also Betsy Liz 
from Norman, Oklahoma, that dropped out of college, got married, got divorced, went to University of Houston and Rutgers Law School, and saw her own little financial crisis in her own family growing up and saw people going broke through her on-the-ground research. I mean, one thing that surprised me a little bit, I spent some time at Harvard Law School interviewing her colleagues, and I spoke to her former students, and almost universally, even people who are ideologically sort of often, you know, opposed to her at the law school, Everyone felt that she was an amazing teacher. Her colleagues all said, oh, yeah, she was one of the most popular teachers. Everyone wanted to be in her class. I thought that was really interesting for someone who had completely reinvented herself from this, like, stay-at-home mom, housewife. And someone who's teaching a very niche kind of, not boring, but very niche-specific, detailed thing. It's not like... It's not sexy. Yeah, it's not like one of the fun law classes, like murder or something. No, totally. I know. No, I think she was was really effective. And that's one of her gifts as a politician, too. She can take this really obscure, boring, arcane material that is actually really important and bring it alive for people. That applies especially to bankruptcy, her expertise, and the ethics of lenders, the lower and middle classes, and what keeps them there. The economic systems in this country that, for lack of a less hackneyed phrase, keep the rich getting richer while the poor get poorer. Warren built a name for herself by understanding these systems and explaining them clearly and truthfully. She wrote a few pop economics books, kind of like a Carl Sagan of bankruptcy. And so when it was time to revamp the bankruptcy system, she got a phone call. Soon after she's at Harvard, she gets invited to be sort of the academic advisor to what was the National Bankruptcy Review Commission. So at the time, President Bill Clinton had decided that he really wanted to do a revamp of the bankruptcy code, which hadn't really had a revamp since the 1978 law. So Bill Clinton eventually turns to a congressman who had recently been defeated in a sort of wild primary. He was an incumbent congressman, young, handsome, very popular, sort of a prairie populist from Oklahoma. But he ended up having this random primary challenger of a, I believe it was a former school principal or former school teacher who didn't spend any money and just did a lot of pamphleteering, but there was a lot of dark money in the race. And mm-hmm. he ends up losing the primary in an upset. The reason this is important is because this congressman, his name was Mike Sinar, had been debating, like a debating opponent of Elizabeth Warren's oh, in wow. high school. So he knew of her and he like, sort of kept track. He like saw her name every once in a while. So out of the blue, he calls Elizabeth Warren and says, hey, I am now being appointed to head the National Bankruptcy Review Commission because Bill Clinton, now that this guy's out of a job, mm-hmm. picks him to lead it. And so Mike Steiner calls and says, hey, I want you to do this. And it, it's just one of those funny coincidences of history because this is yeah. what really brings Elizabeth Warren to Washington for the first time. Yeah. You know, if he doesn't lose that primary, if that, then she probably never comes to Washington really ever First in the early 90s, when Congress was revisiting a big bankruptcy bill, uh, Warren was brought on board to help serve as an expert, to help recommend changes to the bill, essentially to serve as an advocate for consumers and regular people because there was a very heavy amount of lobbying going on on behalf of the banks. And 
really, I think that is the experience that formed her and formed her sense of politics and how Washington works, because I think she was a little naive going into that. She did not realize how powerful lobbyists were, how influential the financial industry could be on lawmakers who were talking about trying to help average Americans, but were in fact just listening to these credit card lobbyists. So I think that really galvanized her. It made her cynical. And she would say that that is what sort of taught her about how hard you have to fight some of these entrenched forces. I feel like anyone that follows politics at all, especially if you listen to our show, might be forced to be cynical about the entrenched forces of big business, of lobbyists, of establishment politicians. But it was a call from an establishment politician, the star of the best episode of Zach Galifianakis's Between Two Ferns, that really brought Warren into the fray. She writes an op-ed in the New York Times about a bankruptcy bill that is on the floor, I think, of the Senate at the time, and how that bankruptcy bill would actually hurt women, and particularly single women who have children, single mothers. And Hillary Clinton saw this. Hillary Clinton at the time was the first lady, and she was going to come to Boston in a few weeks for a fundraiser for her, uh, her husband or for the Democratic National Committee, and requested a meeting with this woman named Elizabeth Warren. They met at a convention center here in Boston and had a very pivotal meeting in her life for Elizabeth Warren. She sort of single-handedly convinced Hillary Clinton over burgers and over lunch why this particular bankruptcy bill was bad for women and convinced Hillary that it was right. And Hillary convinced her husband to veto the bill, which she eventually did. And then, as Elizabeth Warren writes later in a book, once Hillary Clinton became senator, the same exact bill came up on the floor of the Senate. And now Hillary Clinton is representing uh, New York financial interests who very much like this bankruptcy bill, and she votes for it. So essentially what goes on is, at the end of the day, Elizabeth Warren loses. The bill passes in 2005. And it makes bankruptcy harder to file, not easier. It's the exact opposite of what she and the commission had called for. It was the exact opposite of what she had been spending a large portion of her entire academic career doing. Congress went around and did the exact opposite. And from friends that know her at the time, it was just they just describe her as incredibly furious and so angry at losing and also just that she felt that it wasn't honest. It wasn't like an honest disagreement. This is where she starts really feeling that money controls Washington is because she felt that the fight was never on the level. There was no intellectual honesty in her mind. So she started, goes back, she has to update her bankruptcy textbook that she had written, and now she has to update it with all this new law that she had spent six years fighting. Through this experience dealing with lobbyists over the bankruptcy bill, she can see that the system has very much been tilted and manipulated by the rich and powerful to favor their interests. Warren saw how the powers that be worked, what they were motivated by, the real truth of how law gets made in America, and what it means for Americans. She's, again, Drafted by the government to try to fix things, she gets put on this congressional oversight panel during the 2008 financial crisis. You remember that? Subprime mortgages, too big to fail, massive bailouts, when the global economy nearly collapsed because of irresponsible financial activities that benefited the few at the expense of the many, and then they got paid for it. The panel was meant to investigate all of that. She goes to 
this congressional oversight panel. And the panel has no real power. It has the power to hold hearings, but it can't subpoena witnesses. It can't subpoena uh, documents. It can only really request things. Its only real power is the platform, is really the power to be loud. And so Elizabeth Warren, when she goes on this panel, she's elected by the members to head the panel. She very deliberately, from the beginning, decides that I have no real power. I have to be really loud. And the other power that this panel had was it was tasked with writing a report once a month. And reports in Washington, it's like a blizzard of them. There's just like white papers and white papers upon white papers. So she tries to figure out a way to make these reports actually stand out. So every single month when she's doing a report, it basically becomes a monthly media tour. And it starts at 5 a.m. Her aides would come to her hotel, bring her an egg McMuffin. And she would start out her day. She'd go on everything from NPR to Fox and Friends. And she started bashing not just the banks, but the Bush and then the Obama administration for being co-opted by the banks. So that's sort of when she begins entering the public consciousness, is that she becomes sort of an icon of the left, of public anger at the banks and in a government that she sees as out of touch, or at least acting more urgently to save the banks than to save regular people. And then she becomes sort of a public figure. What really is probably the time when she enters public consciousness more than ever is she starts appearing on Jon Stewart. Warren's profile continue to rise like one of those guys who brings wild animals onto late-night talk shows. But instead, she brought cold, hard facts about bankruptcy. She became known as sort of like this pop culture bankruptcy expert. She would go on daytime TV. She would be on the Today Show talking about why people go bankrupt, maybe what people can do in their own lives, but also sort of the bigger picture. And she really came to the public consciousness sort of through those appearances, but Also, when John Kerry ran for president in 2004, he brought her out on the campaign trail a little bit. He talked about her book at the time, The Two-Income Trap, which kind of pointed out that most bankruptcies were not based off this mythology that people spent too much money, but the number one cause of bankruptcy was people going bankrupt for health reasons. And the number one indicator of you going bankrupt is having children. (laughs) Because if you have a child, then you want to have that child go to the best school you can possibly do. Then you're going to do that. You buy a house you really cannot afford in the better school district, which means that both parents have to work, which means you're now in a two-income trap. If one person gets sick or loses their job, then you can't pay the mortgage, and then the bills start to pile up. That was sort of an alarming thing, but it was what the data showed. So after that experience, after the two-income trap really put her very much on the map, now she's been seen as an advisor now to presidential candidates, not just John Kerry, but clearly in the next cycle, 2008. And then, of course, Barack Obama reaches out to her in the middle of the financial crisis. This woman from Oklahoma who waited tables as a young single mother is about to become an advisor to the President of the United States on one of the most complex and important issues in American economic discourse. Sheila Kohatkar has more. When you listen to her, you can see that she actually really understands what's going on on a level 
beyond what most people do. She sees the economy not as just sort of a thing that exists immovable. Right. She sees it as something that is the result of decisions. I mean, it's a result of inputs. Mm -hmm. And so when Washington is making certain inputs based on the interests of one group of people, you will get the result that you get. And you can change those inputs. It's those inputs that brought Elizabeth Warren to Washington, where she had an idea. And that idea was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. She went to Washington, she pitched it, and there was enormous opposition Mm -hmm. to the idea of creating such an agency. As you can imagine, all of the banks and investment firms and mortgage lenders were very opposed, spent their bazillions of dollars lobbying. But she ended up doing it. And she would say she knows how to fight. She knows how to pick the right battles. She knows how to roll up her sleeves and fight really hard if you need to. She did have to go around and do a lot of persuading Mm -hmm. people who perhaps were uncomfortable with the idea. And the CFPB ended up being signed into law, and that was a huge victory for her. So anytime someone says, well, what has she really gotten done in Washington? That is the story that she would certainly point to. The CFPB, once it's staffed up and once they get a commissioner in charge, which wasn't Elizabeth Warren, Eventually, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars have been returned to Americans as a result of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The agency she pitched became a reality. But there's more to the story. There's, of course, the story of what happened right after that, which was that they needed someone to lead the agency she had just created. She was by far the most obvious person to lead it. And President Obama wanted to appoint her to the job, but she needed to be confirmed in the Senate. And... There was absolutely no way they were going to confirm her. She was too polarizing. She had made too many enemies. There were too many, you know, big um, congressional donors who were very mad at her. So they basically, the Congress kind of said, we're not even going to, there's no way. She's dead in the water. We would, yeah, don't even bother. So they had to find someone else. And she went back to Boston. She gets her government agency, but she doesn't get the job running it. And the whole ordeal made Warren not super popular with the Obama administration. She became a progressive star, not just by fighting the banks, but by fighting the Obama administration. She has a fundamentally different view of economic thinking than the Obama administration did when it came to the financial crisis, what caused it, and how to react to it. To this day, the the fights were so brutal that many people in the Obama administration just have not gotten over it. And when I talked to over 50 people, people that worked with Warren, people that worked with the Obama administration, and they called her everything from a condescending narcissist to someone who loved herself and that her staff had a God view of her, to a professional critic, to a demagogue, to you know, the feelings even a decade later are pretty visceral. I would say the feelings are mutual. I sat down with her in August and she didn't make it personal, but she clearly felt that in a lot of ways they bungled the recovery. Where do demagogues and condescending narcissists belong? In the U.S. Senate. Warren was super popular as an author and a scholar and turned that popularity into a Senate run. She was very popular. She never, from the moment she started, some politicians start with, you know, five people in the room. 
work their way up, you know, earning it. Um, that was not the case with Elizabeth Warren. She would walk in and there would be hundreds of people, you know, screaming her name and in love with her. She was already something of a rock star. Warren's 2012 Senate campaign had big business scared. Quote, no other candidate represents a greater threat to free enterprise than Professor Warren. That's directly from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. But Warren won the election, defeating Republican incumbent Scott Brown. A few years later, campaign finance would become a central theme of Warren's run for president. Elizabeth Warren's campaign made an enormous bet in the very beginning of this campaign, which was to not hold any high-dollar fundraisers. It has been striking that the small-dollar machine that really, I think, the first robust sign of it was Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, she was able to, in many ways, replicate. Both the two people that raised the most money in the last quarter held zero fundraisers. Meanwhile, everyone who's spending all their time or a significant portion of their time doing fundraisers is getting outraised. We are in the midst of a huge disruption of how campaigns are funded, and she and Bernie Sanders are really the innovators there. But how much has she done with regards to, like, actual policy? Pre-Senate, she helped change how bankruptcy works. She founded a damn governmental agency. But senators are there to craft and pass bills. I think there's a lot remaining to be seen there. There is not a long list of policy achievements from Elizabeth Warren in the Senate. But in total fairness, there's not a lot of policy achievements from anyone in the U.S. Senate. The Senate and the Congress don't do anything. Elizabeth Warren isn't someone who likes not doing anything. So she did this. And that is why I stand here today to declare that I am a candidate for president of the United States of America. Here's something I noticed about much of her speeches and campaign materials. Warren is a woman with an amazing education, an incredible intellectual pedigree, huge success in the field of academia, a successful career in politics. But she doesn't frame herself that way at all. When she's running for president, she is running from Oklahoma. She's not running as someone who lives in Massachusetts. Clearly, Harvard Law School is a very central part of her life. She never mentions the word Harvard, ever. When she wears baseball caps and stuff with universities, it's like Berkshire Community College. When she talks about her upbringing, when she talks about her career, she spends more time talking about the one year that she was a public school teacher than she does the 20 years that she was an Ivy League professor. Warren has been framed as one of the more progressive candidates in the 2020 field and has introduced policy that, if implemented successfully, would be real, actual, radical economic landscape-changing wealth redistribution. How's that for a sentence? So Warren's seminal, really, policy idea, and I think this was the first major policy idea she introduced, you know, last winter, is her wealth tax. Yeah. When I first read about the wealth tax, it sounded quite radical to me, and her plan calls for a 2% tax on every dollar of a person's net worth, basically, over $50 million. I researched this a little bit, and it sounded, in many ways, like it would be really difficult to implement because there's a lot of tax sheltering going on right now. You could imagine what would happen if a government inspector came to... (laughs) 
came to a hedge fund mogul's home in Greenwich, Connecticut, asking to assess their art collection. I mean, I just laugh at the thought. I think it'd be really difficult. Warren's billionaire rhetoric has really pissed off billionaires, more than Bernie ever really did. Her explicit wealth tax especially got folks like Bill Gates all up in arms that they might end up with only $10 billion. I noticed when I was reporting my feature I wrote for The New Yorker about this, I called a lot of sort of big political donor types, Wall Street moguls and so on, who were known for being very political and supporting candidates, mostly Democrats. And a couple different people said to me, well, you know, they didn't like her. None of them really liked her, although some of them grudgingly said that they admired her skill as a politician. And I think everyone was quite impressed by her trajectory because when I started reporting that piece, she was sort of an underdog. Right. And no one was talking about her seriously. Right. And over the course of the next four or five months, the story completely changed and she was sort of on the ascent. So people were impressed by all that, but these big Wall Street guys were not super psyched about some of her wealth tax ideas and so on. But I remember one of them saying to me, well, at least she'll never pass any of that stuff. That was was their comfort. I think it's going to be really hard. Yeah. That's just the fact. And Washington is broken and things are at a complete deadlock. It's great to have big ideas, but is it possible? Is it real? The super rich are incredibly powerful, incredibly smart, and most importantly, willing to do anything to keep their money. There's a reason politicians team up with billionaires, and it goes way beyond yacht access. Money equals power in politics. We talked about that in the first episode, and the second episode, and the third episode, and we'll probably talk about it more, too. Well, because there's a big question always that confronts someone like her, which is how are you going to pay for all these things? You're promising everyone Mm -hmm. this and that. There's been so much sort of gutting of the government that's been going on since the 80s, really. You know, to try and restore all of these programs that might have existed at one time is a very big job. It's going to be expensive. There's going to be a big fight. If Warren's elected, will she be able to turn any of these policy ideas into reality? So I think the how are you going to do it is a really important question. And, you know, a lot of her answer is about the wealth tax. But I think that needs to be pressed hard. I mean, I think that all these ideas need to be challenged, as they do for all the candidates. Yeah. And we shouldn't just accept at face value. Everything needs to be challenged and questioned. If Warren wins the Democratic primary, she'll be the most liberal nominee the party has had in decades. If she wins the election, she could be the most progressive president America has had, perhaps ever. A woman from Oklahoma who would eventually become one of Harvard's best-known professors, and go on to represent Massachusetts in the Senate. It's a compelling story, if you take her word for it. Because with Elizabeth Warren, that's really all we have. Putting together this episode, I noticed something about Warren. If you don't take her at her word, who is she? She's been called an opportunist, a condescending narcissist, a demagogue. And that's by members of her own party. And, I mean, think about it. What kind of a person wants to be president of the United States? Coming from observing politics for years, it's impossible to not be cynical about someone's motives for wanting to be the most powerful person on Earth. Have you ever seen a movie where the hero wanted to rule the world? So, how should voters make up their minds? 
to any first time voter, I would say read her plans because they are crafted very, very carefully and they are very much in her voice. They are not just press releases. They are put out there with care. And if you want to understand what a Warren presidency would look like, you should read those plans because I can guarantee you they are a blueprint for what she wants to do. The other thing I would say is go to one of her events. If she's in the area, if she's there, go to one of her events. If you can, wait and get that selfie in the selfie line. My one lesson from the campaign trail, seeing her in person is often very distinct from the media narrative surrounding her. But Elizabeth Warren isn't the only person running for the Democratic nomination. There's like a billion of them. We'll dive deep into another candidate, one on the opposite end of the bankruptcy discussion. It's former Vice President Joe Biden, next week on Who Is. If you've been enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and tell all your friends to listen. A sincere thank you to our guests, Sheila Kohatkar at The New Yorker, James Pindle at The Boston Globe, and Alex Thompson at Politico. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indradat. Production support from Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, Margot Wall, and Faluke Tuakli. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Adekuder. At Now This, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube.